Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the 146th edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. In Nashville, Tennessee, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And a quick slant and go across the Harpeth River from me here in the Music City, it's our own offensive coordinator, the coach, Corey Burton. Well, these days it's a pretty long slant and go because I can't run as fast, but uh, it's great to be back, guys. Uh, 146th episode, man, that's that's. We're quite deep in, uh, into our podcast, so uh, we yeah, we're gonna we're, we're gonna hit two hundred uh, about midway through the season this year. So I'm, I'm pretty Man, pumped I'm, about I'm, that. So what are we gonna do for our two hundredth birthday? Um, I don't know. Maybe we should uh, take a key from the uh, bicentennial celebrations from 1976 and just go go all out fireworks and uh, giant Uncle Sam costumes, things like I think that. We should, uh, I think we should do a musical episode. All I got to say is get your bail money ready, I guess. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I, I'll, all I see driving around town here, Coach, is uh, tons of ads for different bail bondsmen. So we shouldn't be that hard to find one here Sweet. in Nashville. Uh, but uh, you've already heard his voice, but we'd be remiss if we didn't introduce the third amigo in the second city, a man who has been enjoying a significant amount of ethnic festivals lately. Oh, yeah. It's our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook. Well, it is festival season here in Chicago. We are known for all of our neighborhood festivals, but I'm sure some people are wondering, you know, where the hell we were recently. Uh, we did a few quick punts or short punts, excuse me. Uh, Matt and I did. So check those out. Uh, yeah, we've we, got a couple more in the can that'll be released yeah. uh, in the coming weeks. Yeah. So. Check, out, check out the coach's office too. Yeah, yep. we got we got some coaches' office up there, so yeah. we're still producing content, even if the three of us haven't been able to uh, get together to but, record. But I mean, we've like we've been busy. Like you know, I was finished up the school year. Coach was uh, doing his family stuff, celebrating his fifth anniversary. Big congratulations okay. there! And uh, Matt's been throwing up most of the last several weeks. So Matt, are the are your insides back on the inside? The insides are back on the inside. Uh, our spring sabbatical is over. Um, I've been, you know, uh, traveling a little bit, going out to LA, dealing with my dissertation. So, so you know. Matt, Matt, what did what did your vomit teach you about drive-through seafood in the state of Indiana? Uh, it taught me that you know once is enough. But when I say I decided to go back for more, and that was my undoing. <laughs> it always is. It always Ouch. is. It always is. So, well, gents, uh, you know, like I said, it's been a minute since we all got to record together, uh, but the extended hiatus is over. There have been ebbs and flows of news throughout the college football landscape during our aforementioned spring sabbatical. But two big ticket items came across the wire in this past week, and we just we got to get back together to talk about it. So we're going to get started talking about the new transfer rule which allows student athletes to transfer to any school. Coaches can no longer block transfers within conference or to future opponents like many school, like many coaches formerly would. However, one caveat that goes with this new rule is that student athletes who are thinking about transferring um, instead of what they were formerly uh, had to do, which was get permission to contact other schools. Now they have to give their current schools notice of their intent to transfer in one 
potential downfall from this is that if a student uh, gives his intent to transfer from a university, um, uh, the school can then go and pull their scholarship at the end of that semester. So I think there's, we got a lot to break down. We'll get into the redshirt rule after this. But Coach, you and I were talking about this the other day, and I thought you had some interesting thoughts on it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love it. Uh, I think it's, you know, the more and more I think about it. Whoa. My friends over uh, – apparently I'm in the office at USA Today. Who knew? Um, so, uh, no, I, I, I like this rule. I think it's going to be uh, ultimately good for college football because uh, when you and I were talking, we were wondering, you know, hey, if it's not – if it's fair for the coaches to leave whenever they want to, it should be same for the players. And, and uh, before they came out with the second part of this rule, you and I were talking, and I was worried that it was going to turn into, you know, kind of a – free agency if you will yeah josh uh, that's actually what i was gonna ask you about do you think this is gonna turn into free agency no because there aren't like an overwhelming number of transfers to begin with i mean talking about like you sign with the school that you yeah yeah i mean you sign with the you sign with the school that you like um i know i know it seems like there's a lot of transfers because there's like high profile quarterbacks that transfer or, you know, like the Cal receiver, the former five-star kid transferred today, Demetrius Robertson, but like, Oh, I actually hadn't seen that. Where's he transferring to? Uh, he's just said that he's, he's leaving. I guess it's got some family uh, issue back. I know he's from, I think Georgia, but mm-hmm. um, played at Cal. So yeah, I think he just wants to be a little closer to family, but uh, I don't think it's going to be a free agent thing. And, I don't think the caveat about scholarships is going to matter either because if it's a five-star kid, the school is not going to want to burn that bridge and keep an open door. And so they'll keep the kid on scholarship until they ultimately sign with someone else. And if it's a lower, you know, two, three-star kind of kid. Yeah. If it's a two, three-star kind of kid, I think they're more likely to transfer like they currently have to FCS schools or smaller conference schools. Like if you're a two or three star kid at say Kentucky and you transfer, you're most likely going to say Austin P or, you know, something like that. So I don't think you're going to get vindictive coaches that are just to be like, Oh, you want to transfer? Well, boom, you're cut off. I just don't see it. Yeah. I, no, I, I definitely don't see that because it burns recruiting bridges and that would just be bad for business as far as recruiting goes. But, you know, I, I was just thinking like a kid's, you know, not necessarily happy with his playing time. You know, he gets in there and maybe he's second on the depth chart. He feels like he should be first and he's not getting as many, many snaps as he feels like he should. And it just makes it so easy for them to transfer. It's like, you know, I kind of likened it to some of the rules uh, down in uh, a few of the counties in Georgia. And it's like this in Florida with high school football. There's a kid, uh, D'Angelo Gibbs, actually, uh, that transferred, that signed with Georgia. He played for four different high schools uh, during his four years of high school. Yeah, but but like, but kids that don't like their playing time and want to transfer, we're going to transfer under this rule or another rule. But I still think the big thing 
that is well. Well, maybe maybe they stick it out because well, I got to sit out a year anyway, so maybe they. Well, they still have to sit out a year, don't they? They do still have to sit out a year unless yeah, it's a, so, unless it's a grad transfer, which you know, yeah. like currently you can jump right in. The only thing is though, the only thing that I worry about is that per the, per the legislation passed, this is a tweet from Dennis Dodd. Um, those merely notifying a school of transfer in the summer after semester is over can have their aid canceled immediately. That is, I think, the only hiccup that we might run across um i mean how many kids are going to be in summer school uh if you're uh, most college athletes are in summer school just so they can pretty much minim- all of them yeah just so they can minimize the amount of a course they're taking in season but are but if they're transferring and we're thinking about transferring they probably wouldn't have enrolled in classes i mean that's true but let's say you're enrolled you, you're enrolled in, in you're enrolled in the spring yeah mm-hmm. so um, you know, I think I think this. I don't think it's going. to – Some people worry that this is going to lead to a spate of transfers, and I, I don't see it happening that way. I think that most guys, once they get on campus, you know, they know they're there to, you know, obviously go to school and play football and work within the team. And if you're a diva that you know is like it comes in and thinks I have to be, you know, the number one wide receiver from day one, a lot of teams that's part of you're just not going to fit in. and You're going to have transferred regardless of the change of rule. No, and how many like high profile transfers have just, it seems like more often than not, you get like a Mitch Mustang situation where it's just some of the fizzles and was mm-hmm. overrated in the recruiting ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, and once they got to college, they couldn't hack it no matter where they went. Mm-hmm. Like, or like I, a Blake I, Barnett or someone like that, who's been to three uh, different schools, I think at this point, um, you know, I, I don't, we haven't uh, had a ton of, you know, uh, we haven't had a ton of transfers from one major program to another that were not grad transfers or didn't go the oh. JUCO route who yeah. had made huge impacts. So I can't really think of many off the top of my head. Can you, and, Coach? And, well, I was going to say what's interesting, too, is most – about Shane Patterson. Uh, he hasn't well, made an impact. He hasn't played it down for Michigan. So, I know. Like, said we will see about yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, what's interesting, though, about the JUCO route is a lot of those kids aren't voluntary transfers a lot of it is uh you know hey you stole something or you got arrested for something uh please get off campus yeah uh you know yeah or you know you get something like the cam newton situation at florida um things like that so i you know i don't see this making a huge difference but what i do see making a huge difference is the new redshirt rule now this i think is uh, a phenomenal win especially for players so for those of you who don't know basically if the in the traditional rule for a redshirt is if you play one snap during the season you cannot be a redshirt so you cannot you, if you play once, you play one snap you get hurt on the first snap you're losing that year of eligibility now um, players uh, can play in up to four games. And it's not in, it's not just the first four games, it's any four games. And they will not lose a year of eligibility. Now, this is going to have huge repercussions, especially if you think of, you know, uh, you know, big four or five-star kids who are coming in out of high school may not be ready, you know, to hack it by opening, you know, opening week or may not be on the two deep by opening week, but come November, you know, they could be making big plays and you don't have to worry about burning a red shirt for them just to play in the last, you know, two games of the regular season or something like that. So uh, coach, how do you think uh, other coaches will be implementing this new rule? Oh, this is huge uh, kids that they, they need to develop and bring along. They can, they can do so. 
with the intent on redshirting him, play him the last two or three games, or maybe play him the last two regular season games, and then in the bowl game, um, and then you get him a lot of meaningful snaps, but yet they still don't lose that year of eligibility. I think it should be huge, and I think I think the NFL is going to appreciate it because mm-hmm. uh, they're going to get better developed players. I think a lot of these freshmen are going to appreciate it. You're going to see a better quality product. Um, guys get hurt. They're not pulling in walk-ons because they didn't want to burn this guy's red shirt. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many positives uh, to this rule that I think it was long overdue. Um, the other thing that I, I think is really interesting about it, or if a kid comes in, you know, plays the first two games of the season and you realize, you know, he's not ready physically or whatever, not you thought he might be like in, you know, fall practice or whatever, not fall camp, but he goes in and gets your first second game of the year. You realize that he's just not keeping up. You can pull him yeah. for the rest of the games of the season. And you haven't burned his entire eligibility that way. Right. Um, this is something I would have loved to have seen. Uh, so you, you can try guys out against like cupcake, teams exactly like like you go play northwest dakota state and you know you can you can take your freshmen and play them and see how they fare kind of like a you know i don't want to call it a glorified scrimmage because they're all important but um it's kind of one of those where you get a shot at it and if they play well then then you reevaluate your situation and you could probably play them in a couple more games and now you really get a good look at them uh you get plenty of good film on on everybody in your roster and you know, it's a win-win. You know, some guys you just know right off the bat that they're redshirt guys and they're probably not going to help you. Uh, but there's some the, – the fringe guys, you know, it gives them a chance to really, really, really develop and get Josh, really good, solid game reps. Yeah, Josh, you see any downsides to this rule change? No, um, but one, you know, upside that we haven't talked about is you're, you're talking about the freshman redshirt. They can play some more. Uh, the other redshirt, obviously, was the injury redshirt. Yeah, which, the medical redshirt. Um, which – you know, this still can play into that where before it was, I think, like a third of the season, fourth of the season or whatever, once you played X amount of games, you could no longer redshirt uh, and get that medical redshirt. I think the four-game rule gives a little bit more flexibility with that too. Yeah, I, I, I think so, I honestly see basically – z- upside. I see, it, zero, I see zero downside yeah. to, the, to this it, change. It, nullify, it nullifies the medical redshirt rule because you because if they haven't played in more than four games, you know, then you get that year back. But if they play in more than four games, you know, that's the risk you take. I think it all should fall under that umbrella, um, and that would kind of cover everything. So, uh, But if they play seven games and get hurt, that's just, you know, that's just terrible luck. Well, the, uh, the interesting thing is this rule can potentially – uh, ruin one of the great stats in Iowa football history. Um, number of games played? Mm, similar to that. So uh, Chuck Long mm. redshirted his first year at Iowa. Uh, he was a redshirt in 1981. However, the redshirt rule was new, and bowls, I do not believe, were included. So Iowa got waxed in the 1982 Rose Bowl. So Hayden Fry's like, well, Screw it all. Instead of the new kid, help him get some game experience. So he played that bowl game, and then as the starter, he led Iowa to four bowl games for the rest of his career. So Chuck Long's the only player to have played in five bowl games. Oh, well, there you have it. Yeah, so between the college football playoff and now the redshirt rule, uh, one of Chuck Long's cool records is now under threat. So naturally, as an Iowa person, I have to oppose this vehemently. Ah, 
Well, um, is there anything else you guys want to add on either of these two new rule changes? Do you see really any, I mean, it sounds like all of us are pretty much on board with both of these. I haven't seen any pushback against, uh, really against any any of these uh, online or anything like that. Do you guys see any downside to either of them? Basically, well, the, the downside that some people, and mostly it's just what I heard on PTI, so it's two old fuddy-duddies, uh, they were complaining that, like, coaches were going to take advantage of it and, like, Nick Saban is going to, like, keep some stud in reserve until the last four games of the year, which, like, that's kind of gambling. If it's that good of a player, wouldn't you rather have them all year? But also... It's kind of like what they do in baseball. They they wait. Yeah. They wait and and pull them up at the end of May, so they don't. There's some sort of loophole with the yeah. Contracts. But but yeah. the, the thing that you know I think trumps this is the fact that the NFL is not changing their rule about three years. So if you are a five star kid, your red shirt year still counts. So let's say your coach is trying to be really clever and redshirts you except for four games during the course of the year. And so you would play two full seasons and four games. The, the coach is just losing out on time to play you. So, yeah. so now, like, one, one regret with this rule uh, is Mark Rick probably would have played no Sean Moreno at the end, of, at the end of his red shirt freshman year in 2006, and maybe won a few more ball games if this rule were around. So it works both ways. Yeah. There's going to be coaches that, that do that, but, you know, again, it's on them, really, uh, to to make sure that they manage their team. I mean, that's just part of managing your team. You know, what guys do you play? It's you know, it's not it's not a competitive advantage or disadvantage to play or not play a guy and hold a guy out or hold this guy out. I mean, they they played two of Tonga Valoa in the second half of the national championship game, and other than that, he got you know a half against Vanderbilt and some mop up duty against uh, Tennessee Chattanooga and. And then they played him in the – if your number's called, your number's going to be called. It does not matter when it's called. So I don't really understand that point uh, for those guys. But um, I think it's a great rule. I think it's a great change. I think it's going to make college football a lot better, um, especially with injury-riddled teams. It gives them more of a chance to stay in a lot of the ball games that they wouldn't normally be in if, if there's a guy that goes down. All right. Well, uh, the last thing we want to talk about today is is uh, is about something you know we are always uh, a little bit probably too obsessed with the aesthetics of college football. And uh, coach and I started talking about this. We were having a little cookout the other night, and we started talking about jersey numbers. And this might be a little bit more of an NFL conversation in a lot of ways, but um, it's that you know I think that there should be maybe some some changes to how players are numbered. Now, college is much more lax than the NFL when it comes to jersey numbers, especially on defense. But we all know the rules. You know, if you are an offensive lineman, you have to wear a number between, you know, 50 and 79. If you are um, a, you know, a quarterback has to wear a number under 20, things like that. Um, on defense in college, you pretty much can wear whatever number you want. But, you know, Coach and I were talking about this and talking about the NFL and how much better it would look if someone like Von Miller, who wore number two in college, could still wear number two in the pros. Or I remember when Reggie Bush came out of college and was drafted in the NFL, he petitioned the NFL to change the rule numbers to allow him to wear number five and said that he would donate all the proceeds from his jersey sales to charity if they allowed him to do that. Of course, the NFL being the – 
being the authoritarian ruler that they are, did not allow this. So I just sort of wanted to open up uh, this podcast to a discussion about uniform numbers and if there are any changes that you would like to see. And so I'll start with you, Coach, uh, because you and I were talking about this the other day. Well, uh, I mean, in college, there's really no restrictions. Uh, I love seeing big defensive tackles wear single-digit numbers. I think it's hilarious. Um, because it's just so odd to see. Like Georgia had a guy, and I know I keep bringing up Georgia references, but it's what I know the best. Um, there was a guy that weighed probably 370 pounds on, on his slimmest day. He wore number six. He got, he got drafted in like the second round by the Saints, played a year, and got cut. Um, surprisingly, he was overweight. I don't know what happened. Uh, but, uh, no, in, in in the NFL, I would like to see – uh, running backs be able to wear single digits uh, and teens. I would like to see skill position guys wear any number they want to. Uh, that's not from 50 to 79. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with defensive linemen. Same with linebackers. Um, anybody but offensive linemen. I think offensive linemen, you should reserve the 50 through 79. It's just tradition. that They look good on those on those guys. Well, and also for those numbers, it, it helps the referees with ineligible men downfield and things like that. I think that yes. is sort of the one that sort of has to be yeah. uh, kept in place, is that numbers in the 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, for offensive players need to be uh, just for linemen. But for anyone else, like, I think it would be crazy to see a quarterback wear number 87. Or, you know, I think that would be fun. Quarterbacks I think, used to wear 20s. and So, like, Tom Brady would wear his age? Hi-oh. Um, or, like, I mean, Shea Patterson now wears, what, 20? Wears 20, I think, right? He wears 20, yeah. Uh, Doug Flutie wore 22, um, you know, things like that. So, well, Doug Flutie wore his height. But no, I mean, I I think, you know, I I think if you want to really break it down, I I think um, all linebackers should wear 30s and 40s. Um, They can wear whatever they want, but I think linebackers will look best in 30s and 40s. I think your DBs uh, need to wear single digits. I think your quarterbacks need to be in the teens Mm -hmm. uh, or quarterbacks can really be. One through one through nineteen. One through nineteen, yeah, yeah. Um, your quarterbacks and receivers and running backs. What about nineties for linebackers, coach? I don't like that. Really? No. Just defensive linemen. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I also always like to, I, I always like to see a, a, a tight end who wears number ninety-two. I, I don't know that always. I always think that's kind of funny. Well, Matt, you played in the wing T also. So yes, I did. So um, we, we we ran out of we ran out of numbers. We I, had just, I think I think ninety should be reserved for the defensive tackles. Okay. Um, and the occasional defensive end. I mm-hmm. think defensive ends should be. Uh, I mean, hell, you you should give you should reward your best defensive end. The guy that has the most sacks, you should reward him with a single-digit number. If they want it, yeah, absolutely. If they, if they want it, yeah. Um, I like defensive ends. Like Lorenzo Carter wore seven. Uh, Leonard Little wore number one. Uh, John Jenkins is the guy I re- referenced yet, uh, earlier. He wore number six. Uh, Montrevious Adams wore number one at Auburn. Um, I think Deshaun Hand wears number five at Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy who played for Florida, I think, who was a defensive end who wore like 87, and I thought that looked really good. Yeah, 80s, 80s and 90s for defensive ends, like yeah. the 
like the low nineties mm-hmm. for defensive for defensive ends or like mm-hmm. the high eighties mm-hmm. is cool. Um, I like eighties on on wide receivers. You know, I like the number eighty. I like the number eighty one. I like the number eighty two, and I like the number eighty seven and eighty eight for wide receivers. What have you got against eighty three, man? It was the year I was born, so not too much. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, and and then you know because my favorite running back number would probably be number five. Oh, uh, number number uh, number five and thirty two. I think are the two best running back numbers. I think five, twenty one, and thirty six are my three favorite numbers. Thirty six. Who besides Jerome Bettis has ever worn number thirty six and been <laughs> successful? Um, the coach. War number thirty six. Yeah, but you were a fullback, not a halfback. No, but I had a very successful two two year starting career in vars at the varsity level. <laughs> you know, I'm very accomplished. You know, I'm hosting a podcast with you guys. I mean, how successful do I need to be? Okay, well, I, I stand. Cor- I stand corrected. Josh, what are your thoughts on this? So I'm just disappointed. Uh, Hall of Fame. I'm just disappointed that there's no way currently to have a zero and double zero. Uh, like a good old uh, Robert Parrish in the NBA with a double zero? Yes. Robert Parrish and Drew Gooden. Yes, mm-hmm. Um I mean, there were some guys in the NFL who would wear double zeros um, back in like the 70s. Jim Otto uh, with the Raiders. Um, Ken Burrow of the Oilers wore double zero in the 70s. Uh, yeah, but I think it should be Sammy, more common. Sammy Ball, slinging Sammy Ball wore number 60 as a quarterback. That just looks strange, though. Sixty is such an awful number, though. I, I think I don't think there are any good numbers within the sixties. Besides, no. well, sixty nine. <laughs> Sixty-eight's cool. Uh, Sixty-nine. I got you. Hey. <laughs> I mean, double digits are kind of cool, like sixty-six. Dude, my favorite lineman number seventy-seven. Oh. Yeah, I mean, no, my uh, fifty-five my fi- looks good. Eleven. My, well, yours double truly, nickel. yours truly was number fifty-five in high school. So. Yeah, double nickels. Yeah, double nickel, baby. Ain't nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, and I always think, and I think those uh, those ninety nineties num- numbers that you detest, coach. Those should go to the kickers and punters. No, dude, your your big, huge defensive tackles, dude. You get a big defense tackle wearing number ninety five. Ooh, that's a nose guard number right there, boy. That- I or the other number. I always associate the number forty seven with punters for some reason in college. Punters should just have all the. Like you should just get the 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 three most aesthetically displeasing numbers, um, the worst looking numbers. That's your that's your punter. No, I think they should just have a big. I think the punters and kickers should just wear a P or a K on them. They shouldn't. That even would get be numbers. perfect. Yeah, they don't even get numbers. Have it be like a ref. They just wear a P or a K. So so Cameron Nizelik, he was a grad transfer from Cornell, no Columbia, the the light blue school in New York. Is that Columbia? yeah Columbia? He 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 came from Columbia, uh, grad transferred as a punter. He wore number ninety two. Yeah, um, sounds you know. Right. I I think that, but I I do think that the you know the number the number of rules are lax, but I think um, they should be relaxed even more. I encourage any sort of uh, freedom of self expression within the football field. Um, there have actually been though a couple of. Uh, I was just reading like though. Like Primetime should have been able to wear number two. That was his college number. That's what he wanted. Yeah. Um, should have been able to wear it. Um, but one thing actually that just came across um, uh, the wire in the last uh, 
relatively recently uh, was that there are a couple new changes to uh, the player dress code um, for college football this season. Um, so first, players are no longer allowed to wear um, their jersey above their stomachs, a.k.a. the Ezekiel Elliott rule. Um, and you didn't, were no- they, didn't they have that rule, like, in the 90s with some Florida State player? Like, these are all just, like, retro decisions. It made. used to be the Miami rule. Yeah, the Miami where, rule. But yeah, the Mi- I thought the Miami motion. rule was no backflips after scoring touchdowns. I thought the Miami rule was no cocaine on the field. No, that's... That, that, the Miami rule is you have to have cocaine. On that. Oh, that's right. That's what it was. That's what it was. The, the Miami rule the, is uh, you're not allowed to steal um, from the stadium parking lot after the game. <laughs> you're not allowed to go on a, a, a booster-funded uh, cruises throughout uh, Biscayne Bay uh, with uh, hookers and coke dealers. That's definitely the Miami rule. Okay, that's what I thought. Also, you're no longer allowed to have your back plate exposed. Um, uh, you know, because you know some guys would you know tuck there. Uh, so, so, so what I'm gathering is that the Brian Cox rule. No, that, that, that's the neck roll rule. <laughs> no, that's the neck. That's the no. That he had a backboard. He didn't even have. A, <laughs> he had a backboard. Um, no. Uh, so what you're telling me, professor, is that the NCAA uh, these aren't new rules. They're just deciding to enforce them again. Mm-hmm. Is so really a, a second one um, is now is a new knee pad rule. Um, it has to go below your knee. has to go below the knee. Yeah. Um, and none of the knee can be exposed anymore. It must be protected by pad, pant, and sock, according to the NCAA graphical These are all high school rules. I know. But you, you know how much, especially like wide receivers, hate to wear knee pads. What's the, what is the uh, penalty for said infraction? I imagine it's uh, uh, 15 yards at the beginning of the game. It's probably removal of the player until he gets it fixed is usually how it goes down. Usually there's a referee that goes around pre- pre-game, and some refs obviously are tougher than others, just like any other rule in life. Uh, it depends on who's enforcing it. But they'll go around pre-game and, and check everybody, and they'll say, hey, you got to fix that or you can't play. you got to fix that or you can't play. And they'll just tell them they can't play until they get fixed. Um, and the other the other rule that that came across isn't a uniform rule, but now um, there's a new kickoff rule in the NCAA, which players are allowed to fair catch a kickoff inside the 25 yard line and automatically start at the 25, no matter where the ball was caught. Uh, do you see a lot of teams utilizing this, Coach? I don't know. Uh, to be honest, I think it's kind of a I think it's kind of a silly rule. I think um, I think. I don't know. To be honest, I, I, when I heard this rule, I was like, I was just kind of like, "What? This doesn't make any sense." So there's been, you know, there's been a big push in the NFL and in college football to sort of almost eliminate kickoffs. And I am, you know, I'm about as pro player safety as anyone out there. But this really, this gets under my skin. I love kickoffs. I love kickoff returns. I think it's the most exciting play in football. And getting that out, you know, w- you know, we might as well just turn this into. Um, rugby league, which if go ahead, what Josh. I, what I don't get is where's the data that there's more injuries from kickoffs. There's less of them during the game, and the majority of the data so far on CTE has been the subconcussive hits, the things that happen basically every play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you've gotten rid of the main culprit of concussions on kickoffs, which is 
the wedge. Yeah. So you've gotten rid of that and forced everybody to man block. So really it's just turning around and playing basketball and you have some fast guy just darting through there. And occasionally there's going to be a big hit, but. But there's I mean, a big hit. There could be very big hits on every, on every play from scrimmage. Yeah, so. there, there could be a big hit on third and one mm-hmm. from, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I think it's just like they're trying, I think it's all a PR move, honestly. And, and yeah, I, I, I don't I see this benefiting no. the game all that much. Um, I also don't see this fair catch rule being utilized by a lot of guys. Because if you're if you're a kick returner, the last thing you want to do is call a fair catch because you want to catch the ball and go. Yeah, I mean, if you catch the ball at the five, there's nobody bearing down on you. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the fastest guy in the league can't get down there fast enough to bear down on you if, you, if you're catching it inside the 25. So, mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, if you think about it, what, what, you know, it's it, it's 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 silly. It's silly. I don't I I, I don't the think only, this is the this only. Is, place on the field that I see this benefiting anybody uh, with this fair catch rule is you catch a ball between the 25 and the 20 and they do a high pooch um, to the sideline and you fair catch it and you get you gain five yards um, because there because if you pooch it to about between the 20 and the 25 you can you know you can get down there somebody can get down there and put some pressure on you to catch your ball but then again you've got to make the catch so um, you fair catch it, you just get gain a five, get there on 25. I'm good with that. But if you fair catch it at the five-yard line, come on, man. That I mean, that's so weak. Yeah. You know, I mean, is there really big collisions? You know, there's more There's more big collisions in punt returns than there are on kickoffs. Mm-hmm. I, I'll be honest with you, since they got rid of the wedge, which, I mean, I'm glad they got rid of the wedge. It kind of creates more excitement for the, for the kick returner. Mm-hmm. But – I mean, all of it's moot anyway because you're starting to see these kickers just booming out of the back of the end zone anyway. Yeah, you know, you know they just, you know, if they if they want to implement this rule, why don't they, you know, do something to shorten the kicks so that this rule can actually be somewhat strategic? Like if you put the damn ball at the the fifty yard line and say, you know, if you kick it out of bounds, it's you know some sort of penalty. You're going to see teams just lob it up to the ten yard line and try to cover it and put pressure on you, now this fair catch rule is effective. If you move it up, create a penalty for kicking it in the end zone, now now you're talking. But then, then again, you, it, you're changing so much that it takes away from, from what football really is. So I, I don't think it should have been a rule in the first place. I think it's garbage, to be honest So with you. in the NFL last year, the median touchback percentage for a team was about 54%. So that means on 54% of your kickoffs, um, you were Everybody's doing anything. Yeah. That's the, that's the sound of the pain train coming through. Yep. Oh, yeah. Uh, or, or maybe Purdue's coming into town, which is not the pain train. Actually, no, I don't know. Jeff Brom, Jeff Brom, I've been reading some stuff about uh, Purdue spring ball, and they're they're going to be watch out. Purdue's going to be even better this year than they were last year. Eh. <laughs> eh. Well, you guys got any other uh, unfinished business you wanna you wanna throw out before uh, we wrap things up tonight? Yeah, I got two. Uh, the right. first is related to some rules, and I have a proposed rule change. Mm. So, um, just really, really recently, I have been jonesing for some football. And basically, when it's this time of year, you have three options. One, you watch clips on YouTube, which is, like, just terrible quality and not very fun. 
The second choice is the Big Ten Network is still running random games, but quite frankly, I don't want to see Minnesota and Rutgers from 2015. So that leaves the third option, and quite frankly, it is the best option. And that there, is, there is full games on YouTube, by the way. That 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 is our friends to the north. The CFL's under under uh, play right now, and I don't love all their different rules, but there's two that I really like. Uh, the first is I kind of like their motion thing, where it, it makes it really interesting for the wide receivers to be able to be moving and. I think, that's, I think that would be a cool change. The other thing I absolutely love, and this is the one that I wanted to highlight, is uh, they have a single. And basically the most common way it happens is uh, you punt it. You have a really, really nice punt. It's down. It's going to be down at, like, the two-yard line. Now, in our version of football, we have the player, you know, run away from it, let it roll into the end zone touchback, or we get the exciting play of the punting team running down there and trying to down the two. In the CFL, if the returner gets away from it and it's downed in the end zone, that's a point. That's a single point for the kicking team. So it awards good punts. The, but So then you're faced with the dilemma as the return team, do you try and field a ball and get tackled and have like a 90-yard field in front of you or a 95-yard field in front of you, or do you sacrifice a point and then get the ball at the usual touchback situation? I think that would make punting a lot more exciting, and I don't see why not because college football's changed the scoring quite a bit of times. I mean, most recently in 1988, there was scoring changes, but there were changes all throughout the history, like seven, eight, nine times the, the scoring's been tweaked. I don't see why not awarding a point and making uh, punts much, much more interesting. You know what? That I, I didn't. I didn't know enough about the CFL to realize that, that that actually existed. That would be awesome. You get if you pin them inside the five, you get a point. Yeah. So awesome. yeah. So like in a game recently, a touchback, you get nothing, and it's a touchback. So if you kick it in the end zone, you, you no. It, it, and so the CFL it has to go into the end zone. So the ball so, has to go in the end zone, and it has it's it, so the ball yeah, goes I'm not in the end zone for college football. Yeah. Oh, you're just. You're applying it. it yeah, what, what you were doing college football. Okay, I see what you're saying. But yes, it means absolutely nothing to kick it in the end zone in college football. It that punters try to get you downed at the one. Yeah. So that that would bring a whole new strategy. You know, just give them the point, and I'll take the ball at the twenty. You know. Well, so it, like here's how it happened in the other game that I was watching. So. Um, can't remember the exact teams. I think it was Saskatchewan, but uh, just for the sake of clarity, I'll apply Georgia's facing Iowa. And uh, coach, who's the Georgia punter? Cameron Nizalik. All right, so Cameron pops. Yeah, Cameron, I'm not going to say his last name. Cameron pops this punt. Come on. And it's the Iowa guy is standing at the five yard line. And he looks down and sees, okay, my blocking's not very good. 
George is going to tackle me really quickly. So he has two choices. One is to not give Georgia a point and catch the ball at the five and then, you know, get tackled and give Iowa terrible field position. Or he lets it go into the end zone or, you know, bounce at the five and then roll into the end zone. Gives Georgia a point, but then Iowa gets the ball at the 25. So you're sacrificing a point for field position. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's say it's, say it's a 21-17 point game, that one point suddenly makes it way more interesting to make it 21-18. Like, that could be really cool. I wouldn't mind that. I, I wouldn't you mind know, that at all. I'm going to write my friends at the NCAA. Perfect. And what's your uh, other rule change, Josh? The other thing's not a rule change. It's more related to aesthetics. So um, I was looking at some of the history of the helmet sticker recently, and uh, it, it seemed like back in the day every team had it, but slowly but surely it's getting faded out, and now there's way more teams that have discontinued use of a helmet sticker. Like, I'm not, who are the prominent schools still using helmet stickers? Ohio State, obviously. All right, well, here, I got, I got the list. Uh, Arkansas still does the hoghead. Clemson does a paw print. Uh, Colorado State does a ramhorn. Uh, Duke does one just for defensive players, which I thought was interesting. Florida State does one. Uh, the Cyclones do one. Lafayette, Miami, Michigan. I just, I just received four Buckeyes for yeah. doing this podcast. Yeah. Uh, Michigan brought theirs back. Sparty does one. Uh, New Mexico, Northwestern, Notre Dame, just for practice so we never see it in game day. Uh, the Buckeyes have probably the most famous one, Rice, Stanford, and West Virginia. Those are the teams that are left. And I'm talking about, like, the award things, not like the Iowa and f helmet sticker where it's just an additional logo item. But I did notice, and this is the roundabout way to get to it, a lot more teams have discontinued their use, including Georgia, your Bulldogs. So I was just wondering, uh, do you know why the dogs stopped giving uh, bones out to players? Uh, to be honest with you, I think it was kind of just something that Kirby Smart brought from Alabama, um, you know, just kind of a way of <sighs> – to be honest with you, I don't know why he did it because uh, Kirby Smart probably got bones while he was at Georgia. And I, I don't – it doesn't make much sense. I mean, I don't care one way or the other. I thought it was pretty cool that they racked up all the bones. But um, to be honest, I haven't really missed it. But, you know, it, it, it was odd. But it was just one of those things where he probably just said, yeah, you know, we're just, you know, he might bring it back at some, some way. Okay. But, you know. Yeah, I was, I was curious if there was any negative fan reaction, but it sounds like you. There's been no fan uh, reaction. Okay. Yeah, not that I know of, at least. Right. Yeah, I was just curious because, interestingly enough, Iowa and Wisconsin have never awarded helmet stickers. So mm -hmm. don't really know uh, what it's like to have them and then have them discontinued. Yeah, I mean, everywhere Kirby Smart has been in his coaching career, they've never awarded him. So it's it's probably just way of life. Oh, sweet, coach. You got anything, coach? You got anything you want to uh, you want to add here before we sign off for the night? Well, yeah. Um, in in my uh, in in my conference, the Southeastern Conference, they've uh, they've had quite a controversial off season. Uh, I say controversial loosely. They really have. It's really, it's the hot button issue within the SEC, but hadn't really gotten much pub elsewhere. So, um, but graduate transfers can now go from one conference school to another and play right away. 
Um, they used to have a rule where they had to sit out for a year um, if you transferred within the SEC. Uh, you could dra- you could grad transfer anywhere in the country, and not you know and fall under the NCAA's rules. But the SEC had an additional rule that that discouraged you from transferring in conference. Um, that rule was lifted, and so um, one of the first beneficiaries of it um, is Van Jefferson, who uh, is going from Ole Miss to Florida. Um, and then uh, they're calling it the Marie Smith rule because there was a waiver. Uh, Marie Smith transferred from Alabama to Georgia and got some sort of waiver and was able to play immediately. And there was a big, you know, stink about it because of the rules in place that, um, you know, if you transferred within conference, you had to, you know, you had to sit out. And, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you're not a grad transfer and you transfer within conference, you sit out the an additional year to the year that you already sit out unless you go the JUCO route and that all kind of nullifies it. But um, so I thought that was interesting. I, I thought it was kind of like, well, I mean, they graduated, so why not get to transfer anywhere you want to go, you know? And uh, so um, I was happy to see it. I mean, it, it's, I think it's a good rule. I think it, I think it benefits the players, you know, you, they did the, you know, they're not leaving on ill will. They did their time at, at that one college. Now they want to, you know, go pursue, you know, and just kind of see where they can fit. And it allows them to play for multiple programs, which I think is kind of cool um, in a way, you know, you get to go play a year somewhere where like the team that finished second year recruiting, you know, probably, you know, you get to, you know, you graduate from, uh, let's say you, you'll say you, you played four games your freshman year. So really you played four years at Ole Miss, then you graduate. Uh, and then now you get to go to the team that finished second year recruiting and try that out for a year. And then, you know, go on and, and you got your master's degree and an undergraduate degree and, you know, it's all good. So I, I like the rule. Uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. You make a compelling argument, Coach. Well, there you go. I silenced, huh. I silenced the crowd. <laughs> you did. You did. Um, one final news and note as we head into the uh, 2018-19 college football season, you guys. Uh, We'll probably have more about it in season, but as we hit summer camp, just something that I thought was pretty cool. Uh, We are entering the 50th anniversary of two interesting college football footnotes. The first is the first ever primetime televised game was 1968, Miami versus Alabama. So in 50 years since that, we've had the explosion of the game on TV, action on midweek, people podcasting, that's pretty cool. But also, um, in your neck of the woods, Matt, I know how much you like the Ivy. Do you remember the 1968 game I'm going to be talking about? Uh, refresh my memory. Yale versus Harvard. The game. They were both undefeated and untied, and Yale jumped out to a 22 nothing lead. Harvard scored 16 points in the final minute uh, to tie 29-29. So we'll probably talk about that game as we get closer to its real 50th anniversary. But that's a little teaser of stuff that will be happening uh, later this fall and throughout summer. So we got a, we got a bunch planned. So, you know, subscribe to us, please. Yeah, check us out. Um, 
We, uh, we're also going to be following this, uh, and I'll, I'll talk more about it in the preseason previews, um, but Florida Atlantic University, Lane Kiffin, uh, has hired a new offensive coordinator. Um, Charlie Weiss Jr., I believe. Charlie right? Weiss Jr. He is 25 years old, and if you look at his picture, he looks about 13 years old. <laughs> so um, I want to say – Does he weigh as much as his no, father? Not even close. He probably weighs <laughs> – uh, an eighth of his father. <laughs> um, so that'll be interesting to follow. I mean, he, he's he's been in the right places. So hey, why not? He could be the new. He could be the next. He could be the col- college version of Sean McVay, who's actually um, Matt. I think he's your age. Uh, Sean McVay. Let's find out. Sean is he thirty-two? Sean McVay is thirty-two years old. He is actually uh, two months younger than I am. He's two years younger than me. That's so- he is born January 24th, 1986. So, Matt, in talking to you uh, off the air about this, I probably can predict your answer. Um, so I'll start with Josh on this one. Um, since we never really ever talk about the NFL draft, uh, one of the hot-button issues with the NFL draft this year was actually the quarterbacks. Um, there's no doubt that Saquon Barkley is going to be the premier player um, of this draft and probably – probably the uh, second or third best running back in the league after his rookie year is my bold prediction. I think it's going to be Todd Gurley, Le'Veon Bell, and then Saquon Barkley uh, mm-hmm. are going to be your three best in the league in any, in any order. Um, so which quarterback that was uh, drafted, Josh, do you think is going to make the biggest impact right away? So the, just the biggest impact rookie year, not trying to project any sort of career. Uh, you can, you know what? Give me give me immediate and uh, long term. All right. Well, you can toss out Baker Mayfield just in general. Yep. Um, I was not thoroughly. I was not very impressed with Josh Darnold at USC. So he's also got. He also went to the Jets, so you can toss yeah. him out. So I'm going to throw him out. Um, I unfortunately am pretty concerned about Mason Rudolph. Just I get shades of being in a very pass happy system. I get shades of Brandon Whedon. Yeah, like I, I just yeah, I think he's a tremendous athlete. He's not like some of those other Mike Are you, are you the AD Oklahoma State now? Yeah. Um but but I'm just a tad worried about Rudolph. Um it seems like most everyone else are people we don't need to even talk about. Like they're, you know, Mike White is just going to be stuck behind Prescott, uh, Falk, Tanner Lee, Danny Etley. Like, no, we don't have to worry about those guys. So that really leaves to me Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, and Lamar Jackson as three intriguing people. Um, Rosen blew me away in college. And – I think Arizona with Davey Johnson has some upside. So I think he is going to have the best career once Arizona figures a few things out. In terms of immediate impact, the Bills were a playoff team a year ago. I think Josh Allen can have an impact season. I think, honestly, uh, I think you're I think you're pretty spot on. I, You know, honestly um, – as much as I don't like Baker Mayfield, I think he'll fit in well in Cleveland for what they want to do. 
Um, and that's, I don't think Tyra Taylor's ever been a long-term solution for anybody. Um, so he'll, he'll kind of bridge that gap. I, I think Baker Mayfield's got enough piss and vinegar about him to do relatively well in Cleveland. I think had he been drafted in any other city, he probably would have crumbled, but I think Cleveland was a great destination for him. Um, I think Josh Rosen has the most tools um, to be uh, NFL ready. I think he has, I think he got drafted to probably one of the most perfect situations for him because you get a, you know, a fairly loaded roster. You got a great young tailback in David Johnson, who is, you know, upper echelon in the NFL. Hopefully he comes back hundred percent from his injury last year. He, he won't be a hundred percent, but uh, until next year, I mean, he'll be hundred percent physically, but you know, I think he'll, he won't reach the peak of his performance until next year, but even 80% David Johnson's better than half the league. So um, I'll take that. And then they go out and draft Christian Kirk. Uh, They have Ricky Seals Jones. Um, They, you know, they've got a good bevy of young receivers. They've got an improved offensive line. Uh, Defensively, they still got some question marks. I mean, Bruce Arians did not, and they got Larry Fitzgerald. Um, You can't discount that. So Bruce Arians, when he retired, he did not leave that cupboard bare. So um, I like his situation a lot. Um, Now, Matt, I got to ask you this. How much stock do you put into – before you answer this, it's a two-part question here. So um, how much stock do you put into the Shady McCoy stamp of approval? And uh, do you think that Josh Allen has enough around him to really – something in Buffalo so you guys know I was I was texting with you guys on draft night um uh, of all of the five potential first round quarterbacks I had Allen third of the guys who I wanted I wanted when the bills moved up from what was it 10 to 7 I think I was thinking Josh Rosen Josh Rosen Josh Rosen I think Josh Rosen was the clear-cut number one quarterback in this draft um and I would have given anything to have him on, on the Buffalo Bills um my number two was Lamar um, I I love the potential Lamar has. I think that uh, don't even start I, with Lamar. He's he's phenomenal. Um, I, I think that it, I think Rosen will end up in the, having the best career of any of the quarterbacks, and I think Lamar will have the second best quarterback of any the career of any of these quarterbacks. Um, Josh Allen has you know he is physically he looks like Ben Roethlisberger um, with maybe a little bit more speed, but he has. Tough time hitting the broadside of a barn. And <laughs> I, my, my opinion on Josh Allen, I think he'll be, he'll struggle early, um, but if the Bills are patient, he'll finally get it together. And he, I don't, I don't think he'll ever be an elite quarterback. I think, I think the floor for him is Ryan Tannehill, mm-hmm. um, but I think the ceiling for him is Ben Roethlisberger. So, you know, if he ends up being Ben Roethlisberger, you know, fantastic. I'm all about it. But if I he ends am, up somewhere. If he ends up somewhere north of Ryan Tannehill, that's good that, that, that that's fine that's, that's fine right. um but you know I, I wasn't enthused by that um did you see him play yeah I, I mean I watched him play versus Iowa he looked yeah. terrible well so that's the thing like I was at that game and he had no line in front of him and no receivers yeah all of his receivers so like I think his receivers led the country in drops last year Yes, but when like, but he has accuracy issues too. That that's the biggest killer. Yeah. So that, so but that, that, but that also could be because he was trying to do too much. Yeah, like 
I thought I thought in a really bad performance he still looked good. It was kind of weird. Yeah. Like I thought Iowa's defense played great. So speaking about the draft, you know, everyone talks about oh, me as a feast or famine guy before you before you move on. Mm-hmm. So, so speaking about the draft, kind of building off what you said, Coach, everyone talks about like, you know, Tom Brady, the diamond of the rough, round six pick, like two hundred pick or whatever. So it's kind of looking at some round six quarterbacks and I'm sorry, I don't think Luke Folk is gonna be the next Tom Brady, especially since he's behind Mariota. And playing Gabbert. <laughs> yeah. Um Tanner Lee was terrible at Nebraska. I don't know how it wouldn't be surprised if he didn't make it out of camp with Jacksonville. Uh so I'm not particularly worried about that. Uh Danny Etling with the Patriots, I uh, know he'll be setting for quite a while. Luke Falk is not as big as I thought he was. Uh, yeah. I went to uh, one of the Titans OTAs. They had a coach's clinic there a few week, couple weeks ago, or about three weeks ago now probably, or two weeks ago. So, so this is all leading to someone that I have as a super dark horse to have a productive NFL career. He's, he's about the same size as – Dr. Tom Brady, mm-hmm. he's playing at a franchise that has a quarterback that is not amazing, who is a little bit of shades of Drew Bledsoe was, and he was... signed a franchise long-term deal before yeah. he got his lung collapsed. And he was... Uh, Absolutely tremendous in college. Absolutely, absolutely tremendous. In fact, probably a better collegiate career than Tom Brady had. I'm talking about Toledo's own Logan Woodside. With the Ooh, Bengals. the Woodman. I mean, this dude. Okay, Hold on. <laughs> let, let me cut. Let me let me cut you off real quick. Andy Dalton and Drew Bledsoe. Drew, Drew Bled, or Andy Dalton is nowhere in the stratosphere as Drew Bledsoe. Let's so it should be. Stuff. So it should be even easier then. Yes. <laughs> So that even that bolsters my argument. If you if you want to know the definition of a mediocre NFL quarterback, <laughs> of an NFL like just barely good enough to start in the league, like I, I, I say I use the adjective amazingly mediocre when I talk about Andy Dalton. Um Josh, yeah. you know who my dark horse is though? Can I before you do that, can I just run through uh, Logan Woodside's last three years is of your, college? Is your dark horse uh, justified? <laughs> Nothing to uh, talk about him. Uh, so um, here was <laughs> uh, so Logan Woodside the last three years as the starter at Toledo. Um, 62.5% completion. Okay. 69% completion mm-hmm. with over 4,000 yards, 45 touchdowns, 9 interceptions. And then last year, 64.2, 28 touchdowns, to eight interceptions. I, he's accurate. Yeah, he's accurate. He passes for a lot. Like, um, I don't know what's to not like about him. And he's a, he's, he's a little on the small side. Uh, you know, six, 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 one, two, 13. Six, two, two, ten, according to my source. Okay. It's only two inches shorter than Tom Brady. Okay. So it's not like he is five foot eight. So I'm taking I'm taking as my dark horse uh, Kyle Laletta from Richmond. 
drafted by a team with an aging quarterback, the Giants. His competition will be Davis Webb, who I think is a system quarterback. Um, I think Laletta, if, if you're taking a guy, you know, past the first, you know, once we get to that Rudolph cutoff, I think he's probably the next. I think he is, he has the, the, the chance of being, a, you know, a multiple year starter. All right. So he, he, he's my dark horse of guys drafted, you know, it, good size, 6'3", 225. Um, you know, uh, obviously played at Richmond, so not against the highest competition, but from all, you know, all the reports I've read, a uh, very smart kid, uh, you know, understands the game well and uh, does well, you know, moving through his progression. So uh, he's the one I'm going to throw in as my, um, uh, uh, as my dark horse. Oh, that's a, that's a very good one. Now, I'm watching Logan Woodside. The guy is very good at play-action passes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very good at the RPO game. Yeah. All right. There you go. All right. Well, I think on that, I think on that note, we're going to have to uh, end it for the night, gentlemen. So Yeah, there's uh, going to be some editing for the show. Yeah, there's definitely going to be some editing for this show that I'm going to have to do tomorrow. Uh, yeah. um, <laughs> but... Um, gentlemen, it's great to be back with you. Um, and I'm looking forward uh, later this, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks, we'll be having uh, a show where we, uh, we reimagine college football uh, in terms of conferences and playoffs um, and a couple other fun shows in the summer before we get into, you know, fall camps right around the corner, guys. We're going to get into some season previews here within probably about a month. So, um, you know, a lot of work ahead of us. But uh, I, 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 for one, cannot wait for the 2018 college football season. Yeah, I'll give you one snapshot to our preview. None of us like Liberty. No. Or Baylor. Or Baylor. <laughs> or Baylor. Uh, we had to retire the school that shall not be named. Uh, so we, we, we will be saying the words Baylor again on this, on this podcast. But um, do not expect them to be said in any sort of kind, gentle tones. I'm actually going to call them Perry. Perry? Yeah. Isn't it super obvious? Baylor rhymes with Gaylord, who's Gaylord Perry. So mm, Perry, okay, okay, okay. Well, we'll we'll, we'll get there. We'll get that. I think at first I, I think you said Harry, like the name, like the name of George's, uh, like like the name of George's mascot, Harry the dog. No, we're we're working out the kicks for okay. Baylor. We're working out the kicks for Baylor's name. preseason for everybody. Um, I got you guys. That's the off season for everyone right now. Good grief. Uh, well, um, that's going to do it for us tonight, guys. So um, on behalf of uh, our own offensive coordinator, the coach, Corey Burton here in the Music City, and our intrepid blogger from Big Ted and Counting, Josh Cook, up there in the Windy City, this is the professor in Nashville saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Can I get an oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.